0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and this week we are Given Everything, talking about the history and power of cultural sanctions, with media columnist and Eurovision watcher Laura Slattery. A little bit later we're going to meet the painter Mark Francis, who first came to widespread attention along with the YBAs, Young British Artists of the 1990s. He's looking back at 30 years of his own painting at the Curlin in Dublin. But we start this time with a post card from Los Angeles, from Ornya Gallagher. This time we're in the steadily gentrifying Echo Park neighbourhood, with its eponymous park where you can rent swan boats or just languish in the sun. Along with other city parks, however, Echo Park has become decidedly less idyllic recently, and a newly constructed chain-link fence now runs all around it. Ornya took a walk in the park with local councillor Maybe A Girl, the first ever drag queen to be elected to office in the US.
1: Hi! How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm in Echo Park, Los Angeles, where the seemingly eternal Californian sun shines down on a small lakeside park with water fountains and swan pedal boats, and where the recently installed chain link fence gleams. An unsightly addition, but it does seem fitting in describing the growing divide between the older, less affluent generation here and the newer, wealthier influx. I'm here to meet maybe a girl, a counselor by day and drag queen by night.
2: My name is maybe a girl. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, and I serve on the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council here in Los Angeles, where I act as treasurer. I also serve on our committee for people experiencing homelessness, and I'm also running for Congress in California District 30. Um, When I ran for the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council in 2019, um, I wasn't running to become the first drag queen elected to a public office. It wasn't actually until I was elected. Somebody had suggested that I was the first drag queen in California to hold public office. And then as we did some more research, we found out that it was actually the first. I was the first in the whole U.S. And, you know, I'm a drag queen, but I'm also a trans person. And being elected locally, being my authentic self was really inspiring to me to want to try to something even bigger and to run for a national position. Um, There's never been a trans person ever federally elected to our government in any position. Um, There have been advances made. There have been some transgender people appointed um, to various positions, but um, there's never been a federally elected trans person. Echo Park is a wonderful neighborhood. It is a diverse neighborhood. I will say that Echo Park, uh, along with a number of the neighborhoods in this area, um, have become somewhat... uh, victimized by gentrification Um, there's been a lot of changes in the past few years a lot of people who have lived in the neighborhood for decades are being priced out of the neighborhood and where are these people expected to go (laughs) that's the question that is the million dollar question and It's hard to say because L.A. in general has just gotten so expensive. Um, The neighbourhood that I live in, Silver Lake, I moved there in 2013 and I've remained in the same apartment because I actually couldn't afford to move into my neighbourhood today.
1: Funnily enough, as a visitor from Dublin, which is becoming uncomfortably wealthy and expensive, I find L.A. a bit easier on the wallet. I'm lucky enough to have security and a house to live in, of course. But we are two cities dealing with a housing crisis, in various capacities, and so I can't help but compare. But Echo Park is looking very different to how it was when I was here last. A horrible chain-link fence has been constructed, which runs all around the beautiful park. Visually, this is very much at odds with the water fountains and swan boats on the lake. I assumed it was some sort of COVID-19 measure, but actually, although it was constructed during the pandemic, it's unrelated. The fence was put up to keep unhoused people from staying here. The park was a community space for these 200 people, and in March 2021, they were suddenly evicted. As maybe echoes, it is always sad to see people living on the streets, but this particular space was actually very lively and functional. They had a community garden, There were showers installed. Outreach people visited daily to make sure needs were being met. In short, it worked. And is one of the reasons that um, L.A. has so many homeless people is it that people come to L.A. to be homeless because, I mean, the conditions in in terms of weather make it even much easier?
2: You know, that is, I think, actually a a very common misconception. I I don't think... People move here to be unhoused, um, but one would naturally think that living in a climate like Los Angeles, it would be better to be unhoused here versus you know, somewhere in the Midwest like Chicago or in New York. But actually, more people die of hypothermia uh, who are unhoused here than they do in New York City. And as it stands, about four to five unhoused people in Los Angeles die every single day.
1: Many of these horrifying numbers are people who already belong to marginalized communities. Black and brown, queer, transgender people, they are typically vulnerable from the get-go, and sadly, without sufficient consideration, their lives can be very difficult. It's a shame this community wasn't listened to or nurtured.
2: Uh, If you were to come here, A year ago during the summer, you would have seen street vendors lined all around the lake, you know, selling everything from food to goods, drinks, um, and it just really created this awesome cultural experience.
1: I'm sure I can imagine a really, really great atmosphere down here.
2: Exactly, and now here we are with this beautiful park uh, fenced in by this hideous, ugly chain-link fence. And, you know, I really think there's an analogy somewhere thinking about, you know, even the Trump administration and, you know, one of the biggest things that a lot of people hated about Trump and his administration was this idea of putting up a wall. You know, I thought that we were over the point of putting up walls. We should be tearing down walls, not putting them up.
1: Maybe he has to make a speedy exit. I should do on stage and drag in a few hours at a nearby bar. Meanwhile, I'll soak up the sun while I can and try to find a space out of the shadow of the fence, as I certainly wouldn't want to return to Dublin with a chain link town.
0: Maybe a girl there talking to Anya Gallagher behind the fence in Echo Park. Now, in the current wave of sanctions, Russian and Russian-associated artists around the world have jumped or been pushed from the stage, from Putin's close friend, conductor Valery Gergiev, to met soprano and separatist cheerleader Anna Netrebko, from opera and ballet companies such as the Royal Moscow Ballet, whose Irish tour has been shelved, to the doors of the Russian Pavilion, which will remain shut at this year's Venice Biennale. And that's not even to mention the cancellation of the Russian contribution to that long-standing cultural proxy war, the Eurovision Song Contest, Culturefile asked the Irish Times media columnist Laura Slattery: Is our moment the apotheosis of cancel culture, or something deeper?
3: There is a huge temptation to link this with the, the sort of the talk about cancel culture that we've seen in recent years. But if we look at history, we know that there's always been um, a record. of of public fascination, shall we say, with the the culture of our allies, whether they're our official allies or our unofficial allies. And at the same time, there's been this, this program against uh, representations of culture from those, you know, w- we're at war with. I mean, I think this really, for me, has uh, reminded me of, of some of the things that happened during the Second World War in relation to German composers whose, whose works, you know, suddenly fell out of favour. They may themselves have been, you know, dead by the time Hitler rolled into Eastern Europe, but they weren't immune to, you know, being censored in effect. At the BBC, for example, the work of Wagner and Richard Strauss was, was very much off the agenda and, you know, bands at the time were, were were not encouraged to perform those works. And at the same time, there was a raft of commissions from, from British composers. And during the phase, in fact, when... Stalin's Russia was the, the sole force fending off uh, Nazi Germany late 1941, very early 1942. There was a kind of a fascination with Soviet culture of the time, songs such as The Russian Rose.
0: And you hear me calling While your tears are falling Where well, the river Volga flows Though your heart is filled
4: with
3: pain My lovely Russian rose the are Co-written by uh, Hughie Charles, who's perhaps best known for co-writing We'll Meet Again and, and other patriotic songs like that. You know, it's a very romantic kind of song, very downbeat, um, but it's all about a faraway uh, love object, you know, who's crying where the river Volga flows.
0: We'll both be free to live To live and
3: laugh and laugh forever bit similar to a much older song by irving berlin called russian lullaby which also um began to be performed again by the the big bands around that time i think we'll sort of start things rocking right away the lullaby but don't let that fool you it's ready for gangbusters russian lullaby So there was a kind of a public expression of support, you could call it, uh, just at that time when, you know, the Blitz had sort of subsided in London and, and a lot of the news the news headlines were, uh, you know, how, how were the Soviet allies uh, faring? Um, so it was kind of romanticised visions of what was then, you know, an ally of Britain and, of course, uh, then when the U.S. Uh, entered the war as well, of the U.S. as well. But, of course, that didn't uh, last after after the war we entered into the cold war period and and you know what can come into fashion can fall out of fashion very quickly So we're now in a situation where our fascination is with Ukrainian culture and in particular because of this unusual um, backstory of the uh, Ukrainian president being an actor and comedian and having appeared in in a a political satire called uh, Servant of the People.
2: Hello. Good morning, Mr. Koloborodka. Can I connect you with Angela Merkel? Yes, you can connect.
1: Hello. My
3: congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union.
0: Oh fuck! Oh. It's it's quite watchable, actually, isn't it?
3: It is. It's quite good. It's quite sharp, and there are some jokes I think that are aimed, you know, at Ukrainian people. But there's but there's also many things in it that are common to all political cultures, including, I suppose, the shallowness and the superficiality of uh, promoting yourself as, as a politician. Ukrainians?
2: Yes, Ukrainians. Oh,
3: I'm so sorry. That's a mistake. I was calling to Montenegro.
0: It also underlines that the centrality of culture to this dispute.
3: Yes, because I think uh, Zelensky has proven to be a brilliant communicator, as you might expect with somebody with his CV, and that is actually genuinely helping the Ukrainian resistance. And it's personalizing it for people as well. I think, there, you know, proximity, you know, we might feel uncomfortable about this, but but proximity always uh, helps with uh, empathy, the converse of that, where you're banning things and boycotting things and censoring things. Uh, it is a sensitive issue because you, you might say that that's not a, a healthy path to go down. And all kinds of conversations about plurality and uh, media freedom, general freedom of expression, that the counter argument to that at the moment is just that exceptional times lead to these kind of exceptional measures
0: in this current conflict, there's been a, a fair amount of um, of cancellations and sometimes bans and sometimes boycotts. Are they people who are taking the hit in the cultural sector? Are they associated with Putin or um, his, uh, his coterie?
3: This is a thing that's very um, difficult to ascertain in some cases. I think there are Obviously, some clear cut cases as well. There's the case, the case of the, the conductor uh, Valery uh, Gergiev, who was uh, let go by the Munich uh, Philharmonic and up previously had some uh, performances uh, cancelled at uh, Carnegie Hall in New York. Um, he's a friend, uh, you know, as, uh, as they put it, of Putin. He's a, a long supporter of him, and you know, the, in, in some cases there was an opportunity given to him to retract his stance, and, and he didn't. He didn't take it. So there are some people who would say that's where this should end. You know, this should really be limited to people who who work for the regime directly. I think the problem is it's very difficult sometimes in the cultural world to ascertain the degree of Funding, shall we say, and endorsement that comes uh, from the Russian state—a lot of it is uh, state-sponsored. So, you know, there's there's a debate about whether that should make a difference with the ballet companies. You know, some of them are state ballet companies, and some of them are privately funded. But what does privately funded mean in the context of Russia? Because there's so many Russian oligarchs, Um, you, you know. We're at the stage now where oligarchs and and, and others, I suppose, extremely rich, wealthy um, uh, Russian business people are having their assets frozen. So it does seem like decisions like um, cancelling ballet performances don't seem like outliers quite so much, whereas they might have done a few days ago. I think now we've probably got to a point where people... Are, are in two minds about um how far this should go and, and for how long it should go on for at the same time i think we have to respect where calls are made from uh, within ukraine uh, for these um sorts of actions to be taken and we, of course we've seen that in the past in in in, in other um parts of the world uh, where people have responded for example to the to the uh, boycott, uh, disinvestment and sanctions movement in, in Palestine. And, um, you know, the author, Sally, Ro- Sally Rooney, was obviously, I suppose, um, praised by many and, uh, and criticised by others for her stance on that. And this is something that we see time and time again um, with different conflicts and different regimes, that it is a legitimate response in principle, perhaps, but People might argue on a case-by-case basis that this one is wrong, this one is right, and this one has gone too far, or or, or conversely, you didn't move fast enough to distance yourself um, from from that person.
0: Outside the classical world, as you were saying, we were looking for some some steer from those directly involved, and the Ukrainian broadcaster was the main objector to Russia's participation in the Eurovision Song Contest.
3: That's right. I mean, they initially objected, and it's very difficult to get a sense of the timing of this but I think that the it's fair to say that the first instinct of the European broadcasting union Union was to say there's no reason why Russia should not participate they obviously have Russian members and they are they are publicly funded uh, broadcasters um but um it became clear quite early on that you know Ukraine was, was not alone in, in its stance and that it had support um notably i think um from estonia which which supports ukraine on, on a lot of these issues um, but not just from them there was also support from the netherlands iceland of course which is a huge uh, eurovision nation uh, finland and norway and you know they just felt that it just wouldn't be appropriate for russia to take part in this contest in may and the eurovision Interesting case, you know. It's such a long history of, of you know, aspiring to be apolitical and, and often just not able to fulfil that because people do incorporate politics into the into their into their entries.
0: And particularly, Russia and Ukraine have a long history of, of, of uh, using the Eurovision as a kind of proxy war.
3: Yeah, there's been several, you know, Eurovision-related skirmishes between just between Russia and Ukraine since Russia annexed uh, Crimea. Most notably this actually saw the withdrawal of Russia a few years ago from, from, from the contest. But there was also a year in which Ukraine actually won the competition with a song that uh, called nineteen forty four that was about the, the, the treatment of the Crimean Tatars in, in, in at that time, but everybody interpreted it as you know, commentary on what Russia had just, just recently done in annexing the region.
1: When
2: strangers
1: are coming Come to your house. They kill you all and say
3: we're not guilty. Russia did object to that and said that they shouldn't have been allowed to perform that and they actually called on the EBU to review the victory stud and the um, competition was uh, held in Kiev the following year. Don't
0: Maybe Putin would feel something about what happens to football and it might directly affect him. But do you think that these cultural boycotts have any direct impact on him or his thinking?
3: Difficult to really assess what has an impact on Putin at the moment. Uh, I think most um, Putin watchers themselves say that what's going on in his head is, is is pretty unknowable, so we can only sort of guess that from you know the track record of of seeking Olympic Games for the for, for Russia, and pursuing that kind of um, visibility through sport means that he will care when that goes and and the projection of Russian culture is something that sort of feeds into the kind of wider campaign of propaganda and disinformation that he and all other autocrats um, are very fond of spreading. So we just have to suppose, assume that, I think. I think the other really important thing and interesting thing about this particular crisis is that there are many uh, Russian celebrities, both, you know, from from culture and, and sport, who have um, spoken out about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's funny really to concentrate on pop stars in the West, shall we say, who are cancelling now their tours in Russia. But there are also pop stars and, and rappers in Russia who say now that they won't tour Russia at home that in itself is is a signal that this is not um, business as usual. It's not show business as usual.
0: I was talking there to Irish Times media columnist Laura Slattery, and you can find all episodes of Servant of the People on YouTube. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, we're going time travelling with painter Mark Francis. For his later show at Dublin's Curlin Gallery, Francis has been digging in his storage unit, uncovering paintings he made decades ago to exhibit alongside his most recent work, all the better to understand what has changed and what has continued over. Thirty years of epic and delicate abstraction. Culturefile talked to Mark Francis about time and space and fixing sound in paint, and about crisps. Yeah, he thought that was a bit of a curveball too. In any case, follow at Culturefile pod now to see some sound.
4: So, the show is um, debt from or the paintings debt from 1993 up until recent. So we've got three paintings in the exhibition, which are from that period, uh, which is Veil, this painting, and Grid, Resound. When I decided to look at some of these older paintings, um, I took two or three out. And you know they were wrapped in plastic and sort of uh, started to take the plastic over. And then all of a sudden, actually, memories kept flooding back. You know, suddenly, once I'd taken all the plastic off, Put it on the wall. I, I started th- I looked at the date. My God, that's 1993, and I thought that might have been 1995. So I was surprised at that. And then I, I was starting to think what was going on in my life at that time. You know, was I still living in a council flat? You know, had I bought a house? You know, it it, it sparks off lots of other ideas. And then suddenly you're, you're thinking about that, and then you're looking, you're. Uh, you know scrutinizing the surface you know is that surface would i be happy with that surface today and surprisingly i was very pleased with that
0: so will we look at the 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 oldest painting that's here yeah.
4: uh, that's a vale. veil yeah it's never it's never this one's never been shown before i think when i um took the covering off the pen and not having seen it for the best part of 30 years um, I was quite surprised at just the, the touch of the marks. It was just slightly different. It's very difficult to describe that, but there was a, a different sort of featheriness, a featheriness to it, because I would sort of brush the painting slightly different. Now they would have a, It's all to do with pressure, and that can create a, a particular type of blurred mark. It's quite a revelation still to see that. I'll be in bed at night, and uh, I'm thinking about the paintings. And you're in a room on your own, it's quiet, it's just you, and there's no distractions. And sometimes that, that's the best time when I'm thinking, when I get the best thoughts about what I'm trying to do. And then in the morning when you wake up and there's other distractions, it's like, what's happened to that clarity I had in the middle of the night? It seems to have sort of vanished. And you're continuously trying to claw back into sort of thin air, trying to pick up in the morning where you had left off at three o'clock in the morning. And if you do that enough times, which I have, I'm not a great sleeper, you do pick up on some of those threads again quite quickly. If I try and verbalize that, it comes out so much better when I'm lying on a pillow in the middle of the night.
0: I've, I've often thought when I'm looking at your pictures about crisps, <laughs> about this sort of industrial design of the eating sensation so that it would always, you would always remain just on this side of satiety and so you would want more crisp. And I found the way that you work with the surfaces and, and the intensities of them, have that feeling of they're just on this side of satiety and they keep drawing you to another crisp, as it were.
4: Okay, that, I've never heard that description before and that, that's fascinating and I, I take that on board. That's that's food for thought. (laughs) Forgive the pun. (laughs) People have said to me in the past that um, the thing that they like about the paintings is they're quite intrigued by the surface and that surface does draw you in. Trying to work out exactly how I've done it. Some paintings are much more obvious than others. And I quite like that. Um, The sort of maybe, I don't know, maybe the mystery attached to it. You know, it's something that the artist um, in most cases likes to keep secret. And, and sort of, you know, to try and get other people to work that out for
0: themselves. It's the same with multinational crisp companies as well. <laughs> yeah.
4: The most recent painting is this grey one, which is called Vibrational Field. And the most recent paintings are about sort of sound, to some degree. This particular painting uh, is, is in, It was inspired by reading something about uh, Voyager, um, which is obviously right at the end or beyond our solar system now. But what they detected through Voyager was a belt that seems from what, I don't know how they've recorded it, but they basically said it seems to encase the whole solar system and they call it heliosphere. And whatever uh, data they were recording from that, they were able to translate it into a sound. So I was quite fascinated by this because people talk about space. It's, um, in, in space, no one can hear you scream. It's a vacuum. You can't hear sound. So, okay, so this, this sound doesn't actually exist, but they've been able to create a sound through that information that uh, Voyager was able to, to send back. The sounds within my paintings are just an interpretation of what I think I would like it to look like. Can you hear this painting? <sighs> that's such a good question. Um, I get fleeting moments when I'm th- looking at the painting, because most of the time when I make the painting, I'm not thinking about the sound, because the, the activity of painting takes over. You know, that's all I'm thinking about. It's only when I've finished it, and I sit in front of it and contemplate it for a period of time, that's when those ideas of sound or whatever else I'm sort of interested in will then start to
0: filter back into my sort of consciousness. That painting, the the first painting we said, now nearly 30 years ago, do you ever talk to people who collect and buy your paintings and have for a long time and talk to them about what living with the painting is like? Like you hadn't seen that for 30 years. Somebody who'd bought one that you were painting at the time has been looking at it for 30 years.
4: Mm -hmm. Yes, those conversations have come up. I'm always very surprised that people are still maybe talking about a painting they bought 25 years ago and that uh, they still wake up in the morning and, and sometimes they look at the painting and then come back with a cup of coffee and look at it again. You know, the, the day previously that they looked at and thought about it, the following day they would have a very different experience with the painting. I want people to not just look at the painting and then and, and that's it, it's there. The last thing I want with my painting is a clear, clear answer, because there is no clear, clear answers. and that's. That's the way that I'll keep questioning things. That's the way that I will, uh, you know, finish one pendant and want to go on to another pendant because it's a quest which is probably endless.
0: Mark Francis there and that exhibition, Echo Vision, is at Dublin's Curlin till March 25th. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more sound painting next Saturday tea time. And don't forget your daily helping of Culture File at the new time of 6.40pm, each day in Classic Drive here on RTE Lyric FM. Till next week, bye now.